Welcome to season four of the Stanford Sidecast. I am Karen Perla. And I'm Trevor Cameron. And this week we're going to be talking about mass extinctions. We're going to find out what a mass extinction is, discuss previous mass extinctions, and what it actually means to be in a mass extinction. And finally, we're going to ask whether or not we are currently in a sixth mass extinction and investigate the impact that it has had on conservation. To help us with these questions, we will be talking to a few guests who have written and researched the topic. First, we're going to be talking to Dr. Jonathan Payne, a paleobiologist at Stanford University who studies environmental change and evolution in the fossil record. After that, we're going to be talking to Peter Brannan, author of The Ends of the World, Volcanic Apocalypses, Lethal Oceans, and Our Quest to Understand Earth's Past Mass Extinctions. He has also written about environmental change and geology for a number of publications, most recently The Atlantic. We are super excited for this conversation, and we hope that you enjoy it. Close your eyes for a second, and let's go back in time. Just over 250 million years ago to the Permian period. Imagine you're standing along the California coast, not far from the Stanford campus. You feel a cool breeze brushing through your body since Earth's south poles are covered in huge ice sheets. If you look up to the mountains behind you, they wouldn't be covered in redwood trees or any trees that look familiar. Instead, you'd be walking among giant ferns that tower up to 30 feet above your head. The air feels so fresh in your lungs because oxygen levels are at its highest point in Earth's history. 250 million years ago, at this time, Mammals had not even evolved yet, so the only animals that you see are reptiles, giant insects, and mammal-like reptiles that we descended from. And beneath the waves, the seafloor is literally crawling with marine arthropods called trilobites. These are hard-shelled creatures with multiple body segments and jointed legs that carry their skeleton on the outside. These creatures can grow as much as 18 inches in length or maybe longer than a ruler or a dinner plate. They look kind of like a cockroach, but are more actually like cousins of a horseshoe crab. Trilobites once filled the ocean, but like many species from the Permian period, they are now completely extinct and only exist as fossils that you might see in a museum. And the reason why so many species from 250 million years ago do not exist today is because of an event called the Permian mass extinction. Over the course of few hundred thousand to few hundred million years, volcanoes released greenhouse gases that warmed the earth so much that the climate became much warmer and drier. There was also a drop in the oxygen levels to the point in which animals in the ocean and on land could not even breathe. Up to 96% of the marine species and 70% of terrestrial species living at the time went extinct in the biggest mass extinction in Earth's history. Permian mass extinction may have been the most severe, but it certainly wasn't the only mass extinction that life has been through. 
I'm sure that many people have heard of the mass extinction that happened when an asteroid wiped out the dinosaurs 65 million years ago. But actually, there have been a total of five mass extinctions in the 3.5 billion years that life has existed. Mass extinctions, as defined by geologists, are extinction events where at least 75% of species go extinct in a geologically short amount of time, on the order of hundreds of thousands to millions of years. But mass extinctions aren't the only time that species go extinct. Extinction is actually a natural process. Any certain number of species go extinct normally, which geologists call the background extinction rate. Sometimes the actual extinction rate is higher than the background extinction rate, meaning that more species are going extinct than normally would. But this loss of species isn't necessarily a mass extinction because it hasn't hit that 75% threshold. A great example of this is at the end of the most recent ice age, when famous species like the woolly mammoth and saber-toothed tiger went extinct, but the world didn't experience a mass extinction. You know, Trevor, a lot of people are saying that we are currently in a sixth mass extinction right now, and that is not because of an asteroid or any geological disaster, it's because of people. Because providing the food, housing, resources for growing global population of 7.9 billion people has destroyed and fragmented a lot of wildlife habitat. Just to give you a better idea, in the past 50 years, we have lost two thirds of wildlife, including 95% of frogs and over 50% of birds. And when you combine this habitat loss with climate change, one in eight species on earth are at a risk of extension. And all of this destruction has occurred in the past few hundred or thousands of years. And we're already seeing species go extinct at a much higher rate than they would naturally. It is estimated that our extinction rate is now a hundred to a thousand times above of what it would normally be. So clearly, this is a serious biodiversity crisis. So it sounds like the main difference between mass extinction and biodiversity crisis is just the scale of each. A mass extinction is a really bad extinction event where at least 75% of species go extinct. And a biodiversity crisis is a time when we have more species going extinct than normal. And right now, it sounds like we have a lot more species going extinct than we normally would due to human impacts. So we have this really high extinction rate and pretty serious biodiversity crisis, but we also have this really high bar for what it means to be in a mass extinction. So are we really in the sixth mass extinction? That is a great question. And you're not the only one to ask this question. There's actually a really big scientific debate in the geologic community over whether or not we are undergoing a sixth mass extinction right now. And one of the voices in this debate is Dr. Jonathan Payne from Stanford University, who has lectured and written about the sixth mass extinction. We will be talking to Jonathan Payne about his thoughts on the sixth mass extinction coming up next. Our first guest today is a faculty member in the Department of Geological Sciences at Stanford University, who researches the relationship between environmental change and animal evolution in the geologic record. We started our conversation by asking Dr. Payne, 
to give us an overview of how scientists started noticing evidence for mass extinctions in the past. He said, how we know that they were past mass extinctions um, really comes from going and, and looking at rocks and looking to see which fossils show up in which layers of rocks. And so one of the things that people noticed in doing this work early on was that sometimes there are gradual changes in which fossils are in the rocks, and then sometimes there are very rapid changes, and lots of the fossils that were in the rocks over just a, a short interval, um, lots of the fossils that were in the rocks never show up again. And so there was a lot of debate for a long time about whether this um, represented some environmental change locally, um, whether it represented lots of missing time in the rock record, because we're not always depositing sediments continuously. They're often deposited in episodes, and sometimes erosion occurs, so we could be missing lots of time. So in, in the 1950s, um, this was still uh, an area of big uncertainty, and there was a, actually a, a sort of non-Darwinian paleontologist from uh, Germany named Otto Schindewolf who was working on this. And he said that he was working in the salt ranges of Pakistan. And he said that it looks like there could be lots of missing time, except for the fact that he could see one or two species of, um, of cephalopods. So things related. Uh, so these were, um, in this case, uh, ammonoids. So cephalopods that are related to squid and octopus, um, but had a coiled shell. And he said that he could see at least one species there that evolved very gradually through the same beds where everybody else was going extinct. And so based on that, he argued that there couldn't actually be that much time missing and something dramatic must have happened. And so it was really this kind of geological information, sort of combining the fact that lots of species go extinct in what are, are now known to be geologically very short intervals of time combined with the fact that we have, for some of these events, pretty good geological knowledge about the kinds of environmental changes that happened that allow us to understand that the extinctions were severe, um, they were global, um, and they were geologically quite rapid. So is our current biodiversity crisis as bad as these past mass extinctions were? Or why do people really think that we are in a sixth mass extinction? When people make the argument that we're living in the sixth mass extinction, I, I think if you look carefully at people who have argued that responsibly, um, what they're saying is that given the rate of taxonomic loss right now, if that continues for any reasonable length of time, meaning even a few centuries, we could very quickly reach um, a magnitude that approaches past mass extinction events. And so I, I don't think that most um, arguments based on counting up numbers of extinctions, um, those are mostly based on extrapolation of what's happening right now and saying that we will soon get there and therefore it's important to take action now to, to prevent it. So the talks about being in a mass extinction actually serve more as a wake-up call or as an attempt to raise public awareness so that we don't head in the direction of a mass extinction. But there is an important question what would lead to a mass extinction? Yeah, that, um, you know, I, I think uh, one action would probably be that we didn't do much to mitigate climate change. Uh, you know, that, that's certainly one recipe for causing a lot of extinction. Um, I would imagine that another thing that we would have done would be um, irresponsible land use, that we would not have protected, and ocean use, you know, that we, we had not protected spaces large enough or connected enough for, 
for wild species to survive. And, and we probably would have used biological resources in a non-sustainable way, right? We probably will have cut down huge amounts of forest. Um, we probably will have, uh, you know, modified in sort of irreparable ways, soils and, and things like that across the planet. That, that would be my guess as to, to sort of the, the major things. And I don't think that's a huge surprise in that if you go into the data these days and ask, you know, what, what are the things that uh, are most the most common threats to threatened species on IUCN's red list? It's land use change, it's logging, uh, it's climate change. And so, um, you know, and, it, and it's hunting and direct exploitation, um, particularly for fisheries and, and things like that, but also for some animals on land. And so, um, so you know, I, I think it, it would be our, our failure to mitigate those those kinds of threats um, would, would be why we would end up in, in a bad situation. Um, you know, certainly there, there's some other things going on, like, you know, spread of chytrid fungus, um, you know, some of the other um, fungal diseases that have killed trees. Um, and so, uh, so yeah, the, those things too, I'm, I'm sure would have played a part. So... Things like exploitation through hunting and fishing and continuing the emissions of carbon dioxide that lead to climate change and also destruction of habitat are certainly the big factors that could lead to a mass extinction. But certainly all of these things are happening today. So should we consider our current bad biodiversity crisis to be as his mass extinction? I'll start by saying that I, I don't think that's the right question from a human policy standpoint, if, if we're trying to preserve a world that, that humans can live and thrive in. Um, we know that there are all kinds of geological disasters that happen uh, much more commonly than major mass extinction events that would be absolutely catastrophic um, to the human species and, and certainly to the developed world. Uh, you know, a quick example of this would be an eruption of the Yellowstone caldera. Uh, these are volcanic eruptions that happen in Yellowstone about every half million years. They happen much more commonly globally. Um, if the Yellowstone caldera were to erupt, it would spread volcanic ash over much of North America, which would cause a, an enormous collapse of, of agriculture in North America, um, which again would be catastrophic. It would you know, um, be hazardous to human health everywhere that that volcanic ash was landing, which again would be across much of the continent. But in terms of answering the question, like, is the biodiversity crisis that we're living through the sixth, you know, one of the five or six worst that's ever happened? Uh, as you were saying, I, I think that to date, the answer to that question has to be no, um, that it, it's not as severe as any of the major mass extinction events, for sure. That uh, doesn't mean we can't get there. I think it's a good thing that we have fossil records that show evidence of past mass extinctions. Because not only do these fossil records serve as evidence, they also help us discover patterns on how to avoid them. Ultimately, I think that we can learn a thing or two on how to avoid mass extinctions just based on the variables that we can control, like emission of greenhouse gases, waste disposal, and land conservation. But our current situation isn't exactly parallel to the evidence that we see in the fossil record. Dr. Payne says, Ecologically, what's happening to the planet right now is very unusual. Um, the other thing that's really tricky is when we compare to the fossil record, you know, a lot of our information on land today um, 
come and and many of the groups we're very concerned about are groups that don't leave good fossil records which makes it hard for us to say exactly how things compare to the past so if we take the current biodiversity crisis in amphibians for example uh, a lot of amphibians don't leave good fossil records and so we know that there's a diversity crisis happening to them because of the spread of chytrid fungus in particular uh, it's very hard for us to compare that to the fossil record because we don't have really good data on the comparable species in the geological past. So if we cannot truly compare our current data to the data of the geological past, then how can we better address the question about being in a mass extinction today? Another way of thinking about mass extinction is to say that it's not just about how many species go extinct, but it's about how ecologically disruptive the extinctions that do happen are. There aren't many examples of the landscape being altered so much so fast um, and of ecosystems being disrupted so much so fast as what's happening right now. And in, in that sense, um, you know, mass extinction might not be quite the right word, but mass disruption <laughs> or something like it uh, is probably a reasonable term where the, this is probably one of the largest mass disruptions of global ecosystems that have ever occurred. Well, if we are undergoing one of the largest mass disruptions, you might be wondering, what can we do to mitigate this? Dr. Payne says that the answer to this question relies on better understanding of how life thrives on Earth. This understanding can then lead to better conservation efforts. The Earth functions through ecosystems, not through individual species. And, and so each time we lose pieces of that, we run the danger again of you know, of losing individual things of very high value and even of sort of creating ecosystem collapse, right? That you never quite know when that critical Jenga piece comes out and the whole thing falls apart. Um, and it, But I do think that it, it's important for us to also consider the, the moral side of it, that we are clearly the cause of, if not all extinction in a direct sense, um, the cause of much extinction um, in direct and indirect ways. And that we're the only species on the planet that understands that, and we're the only species on the planet that has the capability to do anything about it. So it sounds like, after all, we're probably not in a mass extinction. Ah, yes, what a relief. Definitely. According to Dr. Payne, the species that are going extinct often aren't the ones that would even show up in the fossil record. And we aren't even close to reaching the level of destruction that we would see in a mass extinction. We talked about the Permian mass extinction earlier, and that took several hundred thousand to millions of years to unfold. Whereas the biggest ecological impacts of human population growth and climate change and all these other things we've talked about have occurred for just a few hundred years. So we're not in a mass extinction, but that doesn't mean we couldn't reach one in a few hundreds or thousands of years in the future if we keep up this intense, unprecedented ecological destruction. Like Dr. Payne said, maybe the question of whether or not we're in a sixth mass extinction isn't really the right question to ask. Life goes on after mass extinctions. Just like if you were to swim off the coast of Florida, you wouldn't see a trilobite because all of them were extinct in the Permian mass extinction. 
but you might see a horseshoe crab who lived through the Permian mass extinction. And you would probably see other newer marine species that evolved and adapted to the new conditions on Earth. These new species are what make our current biodiversity and ecosystems so special and unique. Yes, but the point is that life would almost certainly survive even the biggest mass extinction that humanity could cause. The issue is that our species would not. An extinction event much less severe than even the most mild extinction would be horrible on human society. Even you move on from the question of whether or not we are on a mass extinction, the question now becomes how do we minimize any current or future destruction? To help us gain insight on this question, we talked to Peter Brannan, a science journalist who has written extensively on mass extinctions. Next. And now, our conversation with Peter Brannan, award-winning science journalist who has had his work published in a variety of outlets, including The New York Times, Wired, and The Atlantic. I read his piece about why we're not currently in the sixth mass extinction a while ago in the Atlantic and was super excited to talk to Peter. We began by asking how he became so interested in the topic of the sixth mass extinction. There's almost no way to understate how devastating humans have been to the environment in uh, historical times or even in uh, you know, recent prehistory. But so for one thing, we're not quite, we're not at the, we're not anywhere near the level of the major mass extinctions. And um, we could easily get there in a few centuries to millennia if we keep up what we're doing. So it's actually kind of amazing and frightening once you understand the geological context that we could even be in the same uh, ballpark as these ancient events. So um, rather than kind of minimizing it, I think it, it, it doesn't, uh, at least the idea that maybe we're not there yet isn't it it should be give people some hope more than anything that um, I think there's a risk when you constantly hear over oh, already in one of the biggest mass extinctions of all time, that it can make people fatalistic and resigned to the idea that it's too late and, you know, we're screwed basically. Um, and I feel like that's the wrong message at this particular moment in time when it's, we sort of live in one of the more pivotal, exciting times to be alive in earth history, because we really do have time to kind of steer the ship in a different direction, but it is worrying that uh, doing so is gonna um, relies on us kind of completely changing our relationship to the planet, um, at least compared to how we have been living on this planet for the past few centuries to millennia. So that's sort of a roundabout answer, but that's sort of where I landed in this whole, this whole story. So the way that we communicate our problem is very important. Because you don't want to downplay the situation to the point where people are thinking, well, if this is not a big problem, then why should we care? But at the same time, we don't want to say things like we are doomed and this is why, because then people are just gonna be hopeless. How do we then balance being able to communicate an important message to raise enough awareness to cause action without becoming fatalistic? What we have is really a very particularly human biodiversity crisis where it's mostly large terrestrial mammals um, that we're wiping out. Uh, and I think biodiversity crisis is, is the right word. Um, so there's a paper that came out and there's, so mass extinction sort of seems like this big ubiquitous universal thing that 
you know, it's hard to really get any traction into how to fix it because, you know, it's just everything's falling apart. But when you really dig into kind of the biodiversity stats, um, there's a paper that came out recently in Nature, and I actually have it here. It's called Clustered versus Catastrophic Global Vertebrate Declines. And the point of that paper is that um, about 3% of species are accounting for, are catastrophically collapsing on the planet. Um, vertebrate species. And that when you control for that and you look at the other about 97% of species, you don't really see any trends at all. And in fact, there's a slight increase in uh, kind of population numbers. And so that gives you kind of a roadmap for where you can apply your conservation energy rather than it just being this uh, diffuse uh, universal problem. You can really start focusing your your conservation money and efforts towards protecting specific animals and more importantly, specific ecosystems. So this paper also identifies a few eco regions on the planet that are currently accounting for most of that uh, vertebrate decline. So I think thinking about it as a, as a problem that can be targeted and fixed gives people something to kind of sink their teeth into and a way to target uh, the problem in a way that is more I think helpful than just kind of thinking about it as a, you know, everything's, everything's going to hell sort of situation. But now that we know that we are not in a six mass extinction, I think it's also important to acknowledge that our current biodiversity crisis is a real thing and that it is serious. And we have to do something about it if we want to prevent or avoid something really bad like this mass extinction happening in the future. But we also have to take into consideration that the world is constantly changing and that leads to us having different generations that have different ideas and perspectives about how the world looks and how it should look. Yeah. Um, I mean, there's this, I, there's another idea in ecology shifting baselines, which is that each uh, generation kind of gets used to this new level of uh, ecological and biodiversity richness around them where what seems normal to you might be a completely impoverished version of that same ecosystem. Um, and that we're kind of, we don't really realize what we're losing. Um, so a lot of these things are, are local, I suppose. Like in the American Southeast is one of the most biodiverse places on earth, um, the rivers and the wetlands there. And I think educating people, I mean, people, there's a lot of people there doing great work and that are educated about it, but, um, say you drain a wetland or a vernal pond or a, or a marsh or something and you put in a, a, a strip mall and you know 20 years later no one remembers that there was a one of the most biodiverse places in the world and it's just taken kind of as a new normal so um i guess i'm a big proponent of teaching people to be aware of their local kind of sense of place and um and then for the bigger problems like climate change, we kind of do need to come together as a species, so. How do you think that taking a geological perspective to our current biodiversity crisis like helps us achieve better outcomes? Well, for the climate side, it really does warn you that you, CO2 is one thing that we really shouldn't be messing with on the scale that we are, because this is a lever that has been pulled in Earth history and sometimes things go really haywire. I feel like I've detected a note of like complacency in some of the climate conversation where it's, 
um, people kind of just assuming, okay, well now we're probably going to be somewhere around two to three degrees C and, you know, that's bad, but, you know, we can survive that. But there's big uncertainties in the responses of the carbon cycle to how much uh, we emit. So there could be some feedbacks that get us into more dangerous territory. Um, we still have trouble simulating um, climates in the geological past that were a lot warmer than today, but with not a lot much more CO2 than there was today. So I think the studying the geological record of these things, if anything, adds more urgency to, to what we should be doing today. Um, I think if there's a consolation, it's that the planet has seen a lot worse than we're, we could ever dish out. And, you know, it, after the end Permian, sure, it took 10 million years for the planet to kind of bounce back, but eventually you had dinosaurs and mammals and pterosaurs and ichthyosaurs and things. So if you're worried about the earth just ending with us, that's not going to happen. Eventually things are going to be okay, but unfortunately not on a timescale that is relevant to us and us living our lives. Um, and we're really only given this one moment in time to, to be alive. So we should try to be as good of stewards as we can be, so. No matter where you are in the country, you should try and figure out what kind of rock you're standing on because there's always a much more interesting story than you would think. It's, I like geology because it kind of is this, I think it scratches the same itch of like sci-fi for me where you know, I'm looking around at a recognizable landscape that is covered with houses and things, but the rock underneath me is from the bottom of the ocean, from the age of dinosaurs. Um, and so learning more about geology is kind of just a way to constantly blow your mind. And it took me a long time in my life to actually get that interested in it. And now I'm obsessed. So I'm trying to persuade everyone else to get as obsessed as I am. So after talking to Jonathan Payne and Peter Brannon, there are a few things that I'm walking away with. First of all, it just doesn't seem like we're in a mass extinction, and that in the worst case scenario, we're probably centuries to millennia away from that. So if you read some exaggerated headline that we have 20 years to stop the sixth mass extinction, you can probably say that that article is wrong. And that's a good thing, because it means that we have time to act and conserve biodiversity. The second big thing that I learned is that the threshold of talking about mass extinction really isn't that important for people because a big biodiversity loss, much less than a mass extinction, would wreak havoc on the environment and devastate human society. So this isn't much about avoiding the mass extinction as it is about avoiding any extinction at all, since every species that we do damages the ecosystems and society. The third and maybe most important thing we've learned from this podcast is that we're the species causing this biodiversity crisis, but we're also the only ones that can stop it. And if you're wondering what you can do as an individual, Peter Brandon might have an answer. Well, I do think like voting is kind of the biggest lever most people have, because especially with things like climate change, these are you know, the fossil fuel industry went out of their way to try and make you think that your consumer choices were the, what was driving the climate problem. So if you just kind of turn your lights off uh, when you leave a room, maybe that will help solve climate change. But in fact, it, we have to completely reorganize how we power industrial civilization. And that sort of thing can't be done at the consumer level. That has to be done at the 
state and uh, international level. So you got to pick the right people to hash this stuff out and running. I mean, run for office too, if you're, if you feel inspired to. And the final note on conservation from a geologist. We have the ability again to protect parts of the planet so that certain species don't go extinct if they depend on, on certain areas or certain um, conditions. The key thing is taking the resources we have and the intelligence that we have and the engineering capability we have um, and the knowledge of the world that we have and, and using it to, to do good things. This has been another episode of the Stanford SciCast. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next time. Thank you.